to this BGSM podcast. My name's Stefan Griffin. I'm a junior doctor working in London with an interest in sport and exercise medicine, and I'm a member of the BGSM editorial team. Today I'm joined by two giants of the rugby medicine world. Dr. Martin Raftery is Chief Medical Officer of World Rugby, and Dr. Ross Tucker, Research Scientist at World Rugby. In this second podcast, we're going to talk about the injury prevention journey that World Rugby have been on and a new technique to talk about load. We also have a special section at the end of this podcast with Sir Bill Beaumont, who needs no introduction to those who follow the sport. Sir Bill is an ex-England captain who has also since led the RFU as chairman, a role he now fills for World Rugby. Could you guys just elaborate on how injury prevention as an issue has evolved over the last few years? Uh, yeah, when I first started once again in 2011, we recognised that, that overall injury prevention was, it was a critical part. Um, we've been consumed, obviously, by concussion, and that's, that's really in the, the management side. Uh, but now we are moving into the, into the prevention, with prevention of concussion, but we're also moving to prevention of other injuries. Uh, analysis over the last, even back at 2012, identified that, that we believe there's around about between 30, 33 to 35% of injuries are preventable or controllable. Um, if you look at it uh, in, 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 as far as uh, training injuries are concerned, uh, they, they should be controllable. Soft tissue injuries should be controllable. Uh, uh, set piece injuries should be controllable because you know the set piece con- suggests that you should be able to control those. Uh, that word set. Um, foul play injuries should be controllable as well. So when you put all those together, we think that there's a, there's a big opportunity there to, to go forward on, on trying to in injury prevention. Uh, our issue is that as a governing body, what do we do? Um, and that was what we were faced with, was we need to have a, a, an intervention that the governing body can, can, in, can uh, be involved with. And what we decided to do was uh, to introduce and to focus on uh, the load we, we recognise that load is a big um, causation of injury or contributes to, to the causation of injuries. And so we decided that we'd use the, uh, the 2019 World Cup as a marketing opportunity to raise the awareness of, of the importance of load management within the sport. And so we introduced a thing called the Load Passport. And what that means is that every player who will participate uh, in the Rugby World Cup 2019 must have a load passport, which is means that their 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 union or their team must be monitoring the load during that period of time for them to participate in the World Cup. So this is an awareness program that we're trying to do. We're not going to tell teams how to collect their load, what to do with that load passport, and so what to do with that load information. But we will be providing uh, information that we've developed from a multidisciplinary group once again, who has developed some ideas around how to manage load. Sure, and the load passport you mentioned, is that then going to be transferable across unions, across individual clubs, and to what kind of level? As, as we said, the, the, the first step of the load passport is to raise awareness within the World Cup. Um, we hope that that would then move to uh, a, a, a transfer of information from, from team to team that the players are involved in, from national team to to club team, from club team back to national team. So we're hoping that's the, the direction is going to happen. We can't actually dictate that at the moment. What we can do is encourage the import, raise the awareness of it, the importance of load, 
and therefore provides support for that to happen. When it comes to individual unions, be it that national, be that clubs, do you find these unions are receptive towards the, the concept of injury prevention and player welfare as well? I think that most uh, most unions and most clubs have all got that um, as, as, a, as a focus and, and as a, an objective. I think we can always do it better. And I think that that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to, by raising the awareness in one area uh, of being, being load, to draw the attention to that injuries are important within the game. And if you look at, if we go back to industry, um, and they look at where injury prevention works the best, it's when it's, it's when the shop floor is taking responsibility. Well, the shop floor in our in our cases are the coaches. So how do we get the co- how do we get to the coaches so that they can then introduce in, in prevention strategies? We need the, we need the medics and the scientists to be supporting that, but the coaches are the ones who really have to adopt it. Yeah, um, f- from my perspective, I'm not a medical doctor, so I'm not involved in either the prevention or the management of the injury in a direct interface kind of way. So what's interesting to me as a, as a relative outsider, and I hate these inter-sport comparisons, and I'm, I'm about to be guilty of one, but my background was cycling and running, and literally all the coach does in those sports is load. I mean, that's, that's literally how you make the athlete better, and if you apply too much of it at the wrong time in the wrong doses, then you injure them. So a cyclist and a runner are constantly walking that tightrope of being underloaded versus overloaded. Now, rugby is obviously a lot more complex than that because there are potentially an order of magnitude different types of training stimulus and it's more difficult to quantify load and there's contact and non-contact and so forth. But it is it is interesting to me that every single advanced professional team, that's not just rugby but team sports, will employ strength and conditioning coaches with the purpose of trying to optimize performance but they that they don't always seem to take the step of actually, if I keep my assets, my players healthier, that might be the significant advantage. And you've seen data, I'm sure, that shows that one of the biggest predictors of overall success is fewer injuries. So the team that has the fewest injuries, all things being equal, will will win. So it's it's always interesting to me that the theory is so obvious, yet it doesn't always get borne out in practice. And I guess what what we're trying to achieve with the load passport is to push that front of mind to remind people because it's not as though they don't know it, but it's just to prioritize it and nudge it up the list of things that they have to really pay attention to, not just to keep people healthy, but actually because that's potentially the shortcut to winning. I think Ross raises a very important point um, that the sports that he alluded to, which is the cycling and the running, are non-contact sports. So they, it's well accepted that load management is important. We, we know from, from previous research and that the load also is an important factor in contact sports. And if we think about what, what peop, uh, most uh, national uh, motoring organisations, authorities actually introduce as they talk about fatigue in driving, and when somebody's got fatigue and they're driving, they can they have a higher risk of a traumatic car accident. Why is that? Because it's because they, they, that fatigue impacts on their decision making, impacts on their, their reaction time. So when we put the athlete into a high risk environment, contact environment like a game, if they are fatigued, 
and then their reaction time's down, their decision making's down. We just need to get that message out there to coaches at all levels of the game that managing the load is critical, is, is one critical step in injury prevention. There are a number of ex-players and there are certain commentators who will say that, yes, there's a lot of focus on match injuries and load in terms of matches, but there should be as much focus on training. Could you give us some background and, and, and your thoughts on this in particular? Yeah. Uh, once again, going back, we did some research and looked at the amount of time and, and loads that was were accumulated either in training or in matches. And what we found was that in, in rugby union, uh, up to 85% of load occurs during training. So if we wanted to try and control the, the, the total load, then controlling the training is a very important part. And that's why also the load passport is there to raise that profile, that the, to say to the coaches, you control 85% of the total load. And that's, so you need to actually take, take responsibility for that and need to understand how you can manage that better. The 15% occurs um, because of the, the matches. And once again, that 15%, people tend to talk about the number of games per year. I'd rather talk about, I'd rather hear them talking about the number of training sessions per year. Because I think, as I said, with that, with that break of 85% in training and 15% in, in games, I acknowledge that 15% of the 15% um, of, is not time I'm talking about. I'm talking about total load. And total load means the time times the intensity as well. So we're taking into account that as well. So I think it's very important that we actually get the message across that whilst matches are, are important, training is for more important. Where it gets mixed up is that often what happens with more matches means more training. What should happen when you've got to get the message across, more matches should mean less training. Thanks to you both, Martin and Ross. Now, as promised, we'd like to bring in Sir Bill. First of all, welcome. And could you please start by telling us how the role of science and medicine has changed since you were first involved in the sport? I think when you look at the the protocol around uh, the playing the game nowadays, as opposed to when I played, that uh, you know, we always had there was always a St John's ambulance man with a, the magic sponge on, on the touchline. There'd be a doctor, concussion. You just did he stay on? Probably. Did he play the next week? Probably. Uh, did he do long-term damage? Don't know. And now it's actually the done thing to come off. If you've got a head injury, players come off. In the community game, it's felt you were brave to stay on. Not at all now. You know, I've seen it at um, National League level, level four in England, where a player gets a knock, comes straight off. You know, I've seen it at the Premiership, straight off. You know, and they uh, and when you look on the international field, they're tracking players all the time, so they know if a player gets a bang, they bring him off. So I think from that point of view, I think from concussion, whilst um, people think there is more concussion, I think there's more concussion reported, and I think we're doing everything that we can within the game to make the game as safe and as enjoyable, but not taking away the aspect of the game that uh, it's a physical contact game and there's no point denying that's what that's what we have. And Martin mentioned yesterday some of the initiatives that have been rolled out across 
world rugby in general, whether that's law changes or some of the new high tackle, the sanctions framework. How have you gone about implementing those and was that an easy process from an administrative point of view? Well, nothing's easy when you make changes in the game as uh, because it's far easier in life to say no than you just carry on with the status quo. What we have to do is educate uh, our coaches, educate our players that you know zero tolerance to high tackles. Simple that there'll be there'll be accidents that happen when players get sort of uh, um, sort of out of position and they do a high tackle. But you accept that that if you do a high tackle, you know you could well end up with a red card or certainly a yellow card. And I think that that has helped uh, improve the game and in, improve players as well in their education. Absolutely. Rugby is very open and transparent in terms of publishing its injury data and will often have very frank conversations in the public eye about how it's trying to improve things. With all of this data documenting all these injuries and potentially negative sort of consequences of playing rugby, what's the other side to that that people should know? What I look upon the game of rugby is that um, what it does for you I think the uh, what you actually get out of the game, and I think it teaches you lots of things in life. It teaches you uh, discipline. It teaches you camaraderie. It teaches you friendship that la- la- and gives you friendship that, that lasts 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 forever. And I think you've got to work out when you play the game that is there an element of, of risk in playing, or well, there's an element of risk in anything that you do in life but you try and mitigate that. But I think the rewards of playing certainly outweigh the, uh, I wouldn't say the dangers, but the, the chances of getting injured certainly get far more reward in the game. Absolutely. And you've mentioned a lot of things around player welfare at the moment. I know you've got a, a week of meetings here in London and I know it, you've, you've discussed it before in, in Dublin as well. How key a priority is player welfare in general to World Rugby? Top of our list. Number one priority. When I came into this office three years ago, player welfare was the, the number one topic. And as I, I see it in uh, the community game where my uh, middle lad Sam played for 10 years National League Rugby. And I see it in the Premiership in England with uh, my uh, youngest lad Josh playing for Sale Shark. So, uh, and you know, he's, he's had his fair share of uh, injuries and things like that. And uh, I know that sort of, they, but he still absolutely loves the game and enjoys the game. And in your position as kind of the top of the tree of, of world rugby, um, for other sports who might be looking to follow a similar path or have issues in terms of player welfare, I won't mention any sports in particular, what tips and pointers would you give to someone in, in your shoes who might be looking to implement some, some player welfare initiatives? Get the best medics you can. And that's what we have here in World Rugby. We have collaboration with all our member union because the sort of every member union would have their own uh, medical department. And so what we try and do is have collaboration amongst the, the medics. We have uh, some get-togethers on an annual basis. Martin is always in dialogue with his, um, his colleagues around the globe. And I think it's... Um, a collaborative approach that we have throughout the game and to me that's what I would do and then you, we then work with our coaches, we work with our players 
uh, we work with the players union, how we can sort of make the game better for everybody. And that's what my advice would be to them. Okay. And Martin and Ross alluded yesterday to the fact that there's a lot of work that's been done in the past in terms of player welfare, but World Rugby aren't sort of resting on, on laurels or anything. What are the biggest challenges in terms of the future of rugby and how do you see yourself overcoming these? I think the big, biggest challenge that we have is not necessarily rugby, but I think for all all for all all sports is that we we need to grow participation. And there's uh, you know you you uh, look on the TV this morning and uh, guys are winning two and a half million quid playing e games, you know, and so uh, what we want to do is get those girls and boys, men and women who who are sat there playing on e games, get out on the rugby field get out on a cricket field, get on a football field, do a bit of running and actually get involved in sport. And so uh, what we have to do, our challenge is to uh, grow the numbers in new markets and that's in all forms of rugby, whether it's uh, tag, whether it's beach rugby um, or whether it's sevens and also try and retain players in the established market and bring players back into, uh, in, into the game. Brilliant. Thanks for that insight. Yeah, pleasure. And thanks to you, our listeners, for joining us for this special BGSM podcast as part of this e-edition focusing on rugby medicine. Let us know your thoughts via the usual channels and hope you join us again soon. Have a great physically active day.